You're listening to the Women's Health Cast, a podcast from the University of Wisconsin Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. With this podcast, I'm exploring issues and innovations around women's health with a little help from experts in the UW Department of OBGYN and beyond. When I think about every advertisement for birth control I've seen, every oral contraceptive, IUD, ring, patch, I see a focus on health benefits and freedom and empowerment, which are all great things. But what I don't see is sex. It seems like there's very little discussion of how birth control can affect sexuality, which kind of feels like a big deal. And according to Jenny Higgins, that gap, which she calls the pleasure deficit, extends beyond just advertising contraceptives. Separating sexuality from birth control can also affect how methods are developed, prescribed, and researched. Dr. Higgins is a professor of gender and women's studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She and I discussed why including sexual satisfaction in conversations about birth control is so crucial. I'm very excited to be talking to Professor Jenny Higgins today. Um, Dr. Higgins is a joint appointed between our Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the UW-Madison Department of Gender and Women's Studies. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Jackie. I really admire your um, research into women's sexual health. I think it's incredibly important. I found it really, really fascinating, and I can't wait to talk to you about it. Um, I guess tell me a little bit more about your focus. What do you study? Yeah, sure, and thanks so much for your interest. It means a lot. I study a variety of topics related to reproductive health and particularly people's behaviors around reproductive health. So I'm a behavioral scientist, not a clinician. And particularly, I think the the kind of research you're talking to me about today is focusing on um, sexuality and contraceptives. And that's part of a broader mission that I have as a researcher, which is just how can we help people avoid the pregnancies that they want to avoid? And how can we do so in ways that will work for them and that will work for their relationships and their lives? And so I became interested a number of years ago on um, whether sexuality was an unexamined factor in why and how people like their contraceptives or will use their contraceptives over time. And so that's been a broad area of research focus for me these last, gosh, 15 years or so. Why exactly did you get interested in this arena? Yeah, I appreciate you asking. So certainly as a young person, I had my own experiences with contraceptives, as as many of us do. But then I started working with clients, patients, at abortion clinics. So in my graduate school and college days, I spent a number of summers and months working at as a patient assistant in two different abortion clinics. And so I spoke with patients each day um, who were there because they didn't want to be pregnant, right? And a number of them talked about how they had been using contraceptives at one time, um, or they even had condoms in the bedside table. But at times, they it, um, they either got caught up in the heat of the sexual moment and didn't use condoms effectively, and or they had stopped using methods such as the pill because they had sexual repercussions. In particular, the thing I heard most frequently from patients is that some patients experienced libido reductions in the pill. And I remember one person saying, you know, what's the point, right, of using, you know, of using um, a contraceptive method that makes me not want to have sex? You know, um, and so I 
was intrigued by that. And then when I went into public health school to and started taking family planning classes and reproductive health classes and read all sorts of literature on what helps explain why people use or don't use their contraceptive method, I didn't see anything in there relating to sexuality. It was almost all about, do people know about methods? Do they have access to methods? And those things are extremely important. I don't mean to undermine the incredible importance of having really good quality, readily available contraceptive services through the healthcare system. Um, but those factors alone can't predict if someone is going to like and use their method over time. And we have huge rates of contraceptive dissatisfaction in our country. So I think this has changed a little bit with the, um, the rise of IUDs and implants, which have been quite acceptable to a number of patients. But especially prior to that major shift that we're seeing with IUDs and implants, there have been several. There were several studies of patients starting a new contraceptive method, and then following those patients over time. And over half of them stop using their method by 12 months. And that's those the people who stop their method aren't all doing that because they want to get pregnant or because they haven't uh, they've stopped having sexual activity. Um, many of them are stopping their method because they're not satisfied with it, and they they want um, something that works better, but they're not sure quite how to get get to it. So I've tried to um, put sexuality into that context as one piece of how we might understand those decisions and one piece of how we might think about increasing people's satisfaction with their method and how much they like it and use it over time. So that reminds me of something that I've heard you say um, and heard other people quote you say that we use sex to sell everything except <laughs> contraception. Right. Um, so what does that mean? Yeah, and of course, it's a glib comment. We don't use sex to sell every, you know, virtually everything in our culture. But I think I, I say that to to help people recognize what I call the pleasure deficit when it comes to contraception, right? So we see a lot of sexual images in our culture. We see um, a lot of ways in which products or public health messages can be, um, uh, well, rarely public health messages, but certainly products can be um, eroticized or sexualized to make them more appealing. And um, and certainly, you know, I always love juxtaposing ads um, advertisements for erectile dysfunction drugs with advertisements for contraceptive um, pharmaceutical products. We see very erotic images in, um, in Viagra drugs, for example, but we almost never see sexual erotic images in uh, advertisements for uh, contraceptives. And, and contraceptives, just like erotic, uh, just like erectile dysfunction drugs, are primarily used for sexual encounters, right? Some people take um, contraceptive methods or use contraceptive methods for non-contraceptive benefits, for sure. But the vast majority of people use contraception because they want to be able to engage in sexual activity without the risk of pregnancy. And so it's amazing that we really have no um, sexual... Uh, context in which we sort of market contraceptives either in our for-profit advertising or in our public health messaging around these products. And part of my point in the research is that that's gendered, right? You know, so that as a culture, we are very uncomfortable with women's sexuality. Um, we're much more comfortable with male sexuality. And that's one of the reasons that contraceptives, which we really see as a product only for women, even though, of course, all sorts of people benefit from contraceptives, regardless of their gender identity, um, uh, that's part of the reason why we have this pleasure deficit when it comes to contraceptives, for sure. And may I say just one thing there, Jackie, that 
I'm, I'll use the term women, and you, you and I might use the term women, but I just want to acknowledge that there are certainly people who use contraceptives, including IUDs or implants, who don't identify as women. And I think we're paying more and more attention to how trans people and gender nonconforming people deserve to have contraceptives that work for them, too. Um, and so I want to be very careful in using the term women's sexuality. On the other hand, there are some very clear um, kind of gendered stories about how we talk about women's sexuality and men's sexuality and our culture, and those narratives really map onto how we think about contraceptives. So I want to ask, um, what do you think are the harms or dangers in separating sexual pleasure from this conversation about contraception? Well, there are a few different harms. One, you know, I'm a social scientist, and so I think if we don't attend to pleasure and sexuality in our research and in our programming about contraception, we're conducting bad science, right? Because it's it's just not the complete picture of why and how people relate to their methods. So, you know, on one hand, <laughs> it's um, leaving pleasure out means that the quality of our science just won't be as good. Another consequence is that we're not um, joining <laughs> with patients in that the way we as professionals are thinking about contraceptives is different from how patients are thinking about and or the context in which they're using contraceptives. And so that is a real gap that um, that means we're missing out on how, um, on how we're really understanding and addressing patients' needs. Another consequence is that it really perpetuates this notion that sexuality isn't important to people who use contraceptive methods, um, whereas we make lots of assumptions about how important sexuality is for people with penises, right? And so um, an example that I like to share on this is we have researchers have been working on contraceptives for male-assigned bodies for a long time, and there are new new targets in development, and it's it's very complicated. Uh, but in those studies, we would absolutely expect that researchers would be attending to how will this product affect the patient's ability to have an erection, sustain an erection, and have an have an orgasm. Right? I mean, those would be absolutely central to any examination of whether this contraceptive target or product would be workable for male patients. We would just consider it bad science if it didn't attend to those things, right? And yet in studies of methods developed for female assigned bodies, those same questions aren't asked um, and have those data have not been systematically collected over time. And so we really don't know much about the ways in which existing methods do affect um, people's ability to um, experience arousal or uh, their effects on libido or effects on things like vaginal lubrication or um, ability to orgasm. So where does this come from, this idea of like when we're talking about um contraceptives made for female bodies, we, we really downplay the aspect of sexuality. Where is that rooted historically? Well, it goes way back to, um, you, you know, the roots in some ways of, of gender inequality um, in, in our Western culture. So I think that um, Western cultures and many cultures have, um, have 
always been uncomfortable with the idea of um, uh, cisgender women's sexuality. And, um, and so when we look historically at the rise of modern birth control, so when we think of um, early researchers of the pill, like John Rock and, and um, Margaret Sanger and others involved in those early efforts to come up with a hormonal way of um, preventing ovulation. There was so um, much moral pushback around birth control at that time, including things like condoms, that these researchers had absolutely to think about, to, to talk about this. This is a medical good, or this is a social good. This is not about sexuality, right? This will help prevent deaths. You know, Margaret Sanger loved telling stories about maternal mortality and patients who, or, or, or people she worked with who were overrun because they'd had all of these children and their health was run down and their, their families were run down. So absolutely early proponents of hormonal birth control really talked about birth control as a way of um, addressing medical as well as social ills, right? I mean, these, these eugenic arguments around this will help us control populations of, um, of poor populations or immigrant populations. And so those narratives were what birth control proponents early on realized, this is what's going to help us move this through the culture as opposed to, this will sexually liberate women, right? In some ways, this role of sexuality or this lack of role of sexuality and contraception has gotten better over time, but it's also stayed the same, right? So when there's still tremendous resistance within um, the family planning field to talk about anything other than just that the, the medical salience and the social and economic benefits that contraception leads to, as opposed to, hey, this, this should be a good part of people's sex lives, right? And even these days, when I talk about these ideas, I often hear from very, very reasonable um, public health advocates who say, we're having a hard enough time just getting public funding for basic contraceptive services as a medical service, right? And you're, Jenny, if you're trying to get us to talk about how sexy contraception should be, we're, we're, we're getting, we're going to go nowhere with this, right? So, um, so I think there's still a tremendous amount of resistance. How do you think that has affected research into contraceptive methods and, um, and the way they're used, I guess? Right. Sort of avoiding the idea of sexuality or kind of downplaying it, making it, you know, third or fourth down the list of importance. Right. right. I mean, a, one example of how it's played out is, as I mentioned, there have been few, if any, systematic collections of data on how methods that we, the F, currently FDA approved methods affect sexuality of people with female bodies. So while we would imagine a trial of a contraceptive um, or a development of a contraceptive method for male bodies attending to things like how does it affect erection and orgasm, we um, the, the studies we have on the books have paid very, very little attention to that. There have been some studies that I think that the largest amount of studies on this topic have been in relation to oral contraceptives and libido. And so there have been some researchers who have um, done, I think, some nicely designed studies where you, um, where you follow new pill users over time and you get baseline measures of their sexuality and you follow their sexuality over time to see how they're doing. Another relic in research of this pleasure deficit is that behavioral scientists like me are rarely involved um, in 
the development of new contraceptives. So we have this real siloing. I'm learning more about this um, in my involvement with this group of wonderful contraceptive researchers who are funded by the NIH. So a lot of basic contraceptive development happens in labs, right, with things like sperm antibodies or, you know, examining new proteins in the testes to see if there's a way, you know, of, of working with that. And so these are these brilliant basic scientists um, who understandably aren't thinking top of mind, oh, well, this be workable for patients, right? They're mostly thinking, will this just work, be work, workable from a physiologic perspective or from a chemical perspective? And so some of some of um, just the way in which research on contraceptive methods happen in these very clear channels of kind of basic scientists in one channel and then behavioral scientists in, in another is um, something that perpetuates this. I think there have been efforts recently, and I was just at a um, conference a few weeks ago that was one of these efforts, to integrate the behavioral scientists and the basic scientists in this way and get them thinking to, you know, to help to have folks like me help some of the basic scientists be thinking about acceptability from the very beginning. You know, that, gosh, I know nothing about your science and I, you know, I, I give you full <laughs> um, respect to, to do your science. But as you develop it, develop, don't forget the importance of how these things really need to work for actual people, and um, in particular, the effect on sexuality is something that you need to consider from the beginning. You um, mentioned this briefly earlier, but I'd like to learn a little bit more. Um, based on your like your research, your conversations, uh, how, I guess, how does the sexual acceptability of birth control affect how likely people are to keep using it? So you mentioned kind of a drop-off yeah. rate in some longitudinal studies of, you know, after a little while, right. um, discontinuing methods. Yeah. How how common, I guess, is that? And what kinds of um, feedback are you getting about mm -hmm. why people are discontinuing their methods? Yeah, it's a great question. And until very recently, we knew hardly anything about this, right? So this, again, just shows how research can um, sometimes just be shaped or, or perpetuated by its own set of assumptions or ideology. And and so we've really, as contraceptive researchers for decades, been focused on how effective are methods and can we get patients access to the most effective methods. We have paid little attention to, do patients actually like their methods and do they keep using it over time? So that study, those studies I mentioned that showed the majority of patients stopped using their method, um, there haven't until very recently been more um, research studies on why is that, what is making them dissatisfied, um, and um, and particularly sexuality has been uh, understudied in that regard. So some of, uh, there are a few studies, including some of my own work, that have examined this. And so I mentioned one really nicely designed study by um, my colleagues Steph Sanders and Cynthia Graham and, and their colleagues. So they studied people who went to um, family planning clinics and started oral contraceptives, and they followed them over time, and they collected a wide range of data on how is, you know, how are your, they had measures on sexual functioning, they had measures on side effects, they had measures on a number of things, and what they showed um, was that people who experienced negative repercussions due to the, to the pill, or at least changes in their sexual functioning over the course of the study, were, um, much more likely to discontinue pill use than anyone else. So, um, so that's a great example of how 
we hypothesize and have some preliminary data to suggest that the way people experience your method sexually is really going to shape how much they like it and how much they continue using it. We did a pilot study of about 150 new start IUD and implant users, and we um, followed them for a year and collected a variety of sexual measures over time. We also just asked a question at several time points. Do you feel like your method that you've started has had no effect on your sex life, positive effect on your sex life, or a negative effect on your sex life? So just the perception, just asking someone whether or not it's real, quote unquote, you know, physiologically, does someone perceive that their method is having um, a neutral effect, a positive effect, or a negative effect on their sex life. And what we found is that virtually 100% of the people who said their method had a positive effect on their sex life were still using their method at one year, 100%, right? And the people who said their method had a negative effect on their sex life, um, it was closer to 50 or 60% had, had, were still using, which is still relatively high you know, compared to, to some fears. But, um, and the folks who had a neutral effect looked similar to the positive. So, you know, even no effect on sexuality is better than a bad effect, right? And so um, I was astonished, right, by, the, by what we found in that pilot study. We now are doing a study of about 3,500 um, patients who have started a, a variety of methods, including IUDs and implants, but also including pills and um, shots and rings, et cetera. And we're hoping to have much um, more thorough data to share on a variety of methods in that way. You know, would, do we find the same thing with those other methods that we found with IUDs and implants? So based on some of my colleagues' research as well as some of our preliminary research, the way people experience their method sexually has a huge impact on whether they like their method and whether they're still using it. And I, I want to say that I once thought that if someone just gets the right method for her, then she'll be set for life, right? And I now I take a much more complex approach to this, that my, my colleague Jessica Sanders talks about this as contraceptive journeys, right? That someone at one life stage is going to need one kind of method and a different life stage is going to need a different life method. So I think my real guidance for, for, for people who use contraception would be you deserve to find a method that works for you sexually, if your current method doesn't, let's help you find something else or, you know, find something else for yourself. And that might change over time. And then we can reassess that, right? So that, that the same method that works for you right now may not work for you forever, but you deserve to find one that's going to work for you sexually and um, or at least not have a negative impact on your, on your sex life. So I have to be honest, when I um, was looking into different contraceptive methods, I never considered right. that um, sexual side effects like were something that I could change totally. or were something that I didn't just have to kind of live with or work around. Totally. And um, how can people who are you know seeking out a contrace contraceptive method and trying to figure out what works for them make informed, empowered choices and kind of advocate for themselves a yeah. little better to... Um, to make sure that sexual acceptability is is taken into account. It's a great question, and you're in really good company, right? I mean, this just this just isn't a narrative that we have in our culture about contraceptives, and so, um, and I can't tell you how many 
focus groups and interviews I've had um, with research participants over the years where, you know, I'm thinking of this one focus group I had of university students who were otherwise just really incredibly sexually um, uh, empowered, you know, were able to talk about um, their sexual relationships and their lives um, in really articulate and amazing ways. And when I said, and how about your your contraceptives, how about your birth control? How does that fit in? No one had anything to say. You know, they just had never considered their pills or patches or rings in light of what it means to have a healthy, happy sex life. You know, they thought of it more as a medical good than a, than a sexual good. Um, so this is very, very common. I do think there's there are changes needed at a larger structural and cultural level, and then there are potentially things that individuals can do, right? I think sometimes in public health and medicine, we rely too much on the patient or the provider to change the system, right? When when really what we're talking about is a larger cultural shift, right? So if I could wave my magic wand, we as a culture would come to think of contraceptives as not, as not just a medical good, but also a good that people use often in sexual contexts. And so um, we need to be thinking about, does this work for this person or this person's partner and other things in a... Um, in a, in a sexual way, in a relationship way. At an individual level, I think, you know, what I, I teach a very, very large um, health, gender and health course. It's an intro level course in the Gender and Women's Studies Department here. And what I tell the students is, you know, if you remember one thing, it's just you deserve to find a method that works for you. And how you define that is up to you. Um, you know, for for some people, having a reduction in menstrual bleeding might be the most important thing. For some people, that's less important, but having no synthetic hormones may be the most important thing. Um, but in all of it, you deserve to have a method that isn't going to detract from your sex life or your partner's sex life. And so if you if that comes up for you, that's okay and normal, and you can talk to people or you can look into resources about finding another method that's going to work better. Um, and so just planting that seed that, you know, maybe you'll have absolutely no sexual impact due to your method, but if you have a negative one, you deserve to find another method that's going to work for you because that's going to be better for everybody, right? You know, it's, it's you're going to be more satisfied with your method and with your sex life. Your partner's going to be more satisfied. Um, you'll be better able to prevent the pregnancies you want to prevent. So, um, it, this isn't about sexual entitlement. This is about thinking about how sexuality can just promote, you know, more general um, health and well-being across the board. Do you see any signs that the sort of systemic and structural conversation might be changing for the better, that people might be getting more comfortable thinking about sexuality, especially in regards to birth control? It's a great question, and I'm in, inherently optimistic. And so I do think that the arc of time is moving us to a better place in terms of how we think about sexuality as a culture, how we think about um, contraception in relate in relationship to um, sexuality. That said, as I mentioned, it does feel like things are remarkably similar to, than to, to what they've been for decades. You know, I've been working on this for 15 or 20 years, and I still encounter people who who are just shocked to be thinking about birth control in a sexual way, you know, and and, um, and yet, again, we get back to the optimism. I'm really heartened by watching this younger generation 
be using these sex positive frameworks in their lives and, and in their world in a way that that is just beyond anything my generation was doing. And so I do really think that um, yeah, I just put great faith in, in what um, younger folks are going to be bringing into this discussion, not just in terms of sexuality and pleasure, but especially in terms of how we think about gender and how we think about sexuality um, as I, as identities or you know shifting identities in relationship to these things. I think my generation is year, light years behind, right? What the, what this last this latest generation is thinking in terms of those lines. So I take a lot of um, optimism in in the future generation in that way. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, this was a treat. Thanks, Jackie. I want to thank you for tuning in to the first season of the Women's HealthCast. We'll be back in early 2019 to learn about the importance of clinical trials from Dr. Laurel Rice, and we are hard at work preparing for a pretty awesome second season. But in the meantime, find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at WISCOBGYN, to let us know what women's health issue you'd like to learn more about. Women's HealthCast is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza.